0: I invite you to turn your Bibles or your electronic devices to John chapter 6. We'll also have the text up here on the screen. John chapter 6. <clears throat> my, my hometown, where I uh, lived the first 18 years of my life, is Long Prairie, Minnesota. Long Prairie, Minnesota. The Native American name of the town tells you something about the town. It's flat land, so I was raised a Flatlander, and I, I still have vivid memories of um, first visit I made to Seattle, Washington. And after several days, I guess, of typically rainy, cloudy Pacific Northwest weather, the sky cleared, and I saw Mount Rainier, and it shocked me. Uh, I remember, I just remember saying, what is that? I mean, it was so massive, dominating uh, awesome, stunning, overwhelming. It, just, it literally did something to me. Uh, it made me something of a mountain man. I mean, not like a revenant or something like that, but you know, like I, it, it, I, I loved mountains, I began to love mountains. And I, uh, I remember then a few years later, um, I was on a missions trip to Japan. Same thing happened. One day the clouds parted. And for the first time, I get this clear, unobstructed view of Mount Fuji. It's just this iconic shape dominating the sky. And I, again, I said to this um, this Japanese friend, I go, "What is that?" And and he he replies, "Oh, Fuji Song," and uh, it, it just was amazing. And. Um, To see these grand mountain peaks with such unobstructed clarity—it's actually rare, right? It it doesn't happen that often. People can wait for days or weeks uh, before the clouds part and one of these—they behold one of these dominant, uh, majestic features in the horizon. And and as for me, um, that. Take your breath away, immensity and beauty. It, it, it captured me. I longed for more. I still long for more. I just love seeing these massive mountains. And the clearer, uh, I just oh for clearer, more unobstructed views such as these. Because they get something into my heart. Wonder. Humility. The sense of majesty and the pleasure in it and worship. And if you're a Christian and the spirit of Jesus has opened your eyes to the glory of Jesus, then what your heart longs for are clear, unobstructed views of Jesus. And that's because God uses clear, unobstructed views of Christ Jesus to get something into our hearts. And and that's something, that that joy, that wonder, it it transforms us, it affects us. Now, of course, the Old Testament has views of Christ, but those views are kind of like... uh, you know, S- Seattle most of the time. They're hazy, cloudy, unclear. The Old Testament is filled with vague outlines and shadowy silhouettes of Jesus. And, and so where they stand in relation to time and this progressive revelation of the storyline of redemption, that they leave us with limited visibility. But now, now the Word has become flesh. And has dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. And the gospel of John is a window through which we can look. And we can have these very clear, unobstructed views of Christ Jesus. Of who he is and what he came to do. And through these clear and unobstructed Views of Christ Jesus in the Gospel of John, God intends to put something in our hearts. Something that will change us. So, let's throw open the window again and see what God the Father and the Apostle John intend for us to see. I'm going to read John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 35 through 40. And I would ask you to give your undivided attention to God's holy and eternal and life-giving word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven Not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the sun, and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is God's word. May he bless it, bless the reading of it, bless the hearing of it, bless the preaching of it, in order that we might know him and commune with him as he is. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I, I feel about as able to accomplish something here as, as um, about as much as I would be able to part the clouds and clear the sky so that someone could see a 14,000, 15,000 foot mountain peak. Flesh and blood are, are no help when it comes to beholding you with the eyes of our hearts. So we, we seek you now, if it would please you, Lord God, by the work of your Spirit, bringing illumination to this written revelation of you. Open our eyes. Give us clear, unobstructed views of our Lord Jesus Christ put something in our hearts as we see our Lord Jesus? Where there is spiritual deadness, would you bring spiritual resurrection? Where there is spiritual dullness, would you bring spiritual revival? Where there's spiritual drifting, would you Would you bring us back to you as you show us your glory? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 6 opens up some some very clear and unobstructed vistas of the glory of Christ Jesus. In verse 44, the clouds part, and we see this spectacular peak of the Lord's sovereign initiative in our salvation. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And perhaps you hear that and you say to yourself, whoa, whoa! that is way, that's way up there. That is scary stuff. And perhaps you hear that and you wonder, well, then then what do we say to those who have not yet come to Jesus? What do we do? What do we we tell those who do not seem to be drawn, who don't find Jesus attractive? And what we do is we point them to Jesus and to what he said, verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Who Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come to me, believe in me, turn to me. Whoever you are, eat and drink your fill of me. We point them to verse 37. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that Everyone who looks, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. So you see, Jesus, Jesus consistently asserts both God's divine initiative and human responsibility side by side in the strongest, most unambiguous terms as two and ultimate facts. One cannot come unless the Father draws him, and one will not come unless we call them to come, and invite them to come, and tell them to come, and take the courage and confidence that that all that the Father gives to Jesus, they will come. J.I. Packer writes, C.H. Spurgeon was once asked, if he could reconcile these two truths to each other, namely, God's sovereignty man's responsibility. I wouldn't try, Spurgeon replied. I never reconcile friends. They're friends. They go together. What a mountain peak. But there's another massive and majestic mountain peak Reaching upward in unobstructed clarity in John 6, 37 to 40. And that is the gospel truth that true believers are kept by the power of Christ. True believers are kept by the power of Christ. That is, those who truly believe in Christ are kept, kept in faith, kept in grace, kept in Christ, all the way to the end by the unconquerable power of Christ. Those in the Reformed tradition refer to this truth as, as the perseverance of the saints, or another way of saying it is the preservation of the believer. However we choose to label it, this truth aims to answer a very important question. And that question is, can salvation, once received, be lost? Can salvation, once received, be lost? Can, can someone lose their salvation? And the answer according to the doctrine of the preservation of the believer, by the unconquerable power of Christ, is those whom God has given eternal life will never be lost. Look at verse 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever the Father gives to Jesus, Jesus will never cast out. Whoever truly believes, Jesus will never cast out. Now, this phrase, never cast out, that's a figure of speech, right? He could have said, um, whoever the Father gives me, I'll keep him. I'll keep him all the way to the end. But it's a figure of speech and, and, and the purpose of the figure of speech, I will never cast out, is intended to add some, add some octane To this promise, so to speak. There's added force. There's added emphasis. And so, this becomes the claim of the text, right? This is the promise. And Jesus means to drive this promise, this truth, this doctrine deep into our hearts. I will always keep. I will never lose. I will never cast out. I will always, to the very end, hold you fast. But now you see, we we must clarify. To whom does Jesus make this promise? For whom is this promise? Perhaps you're familiar with a... It's an old phrase. I used to actually say it a lot. Um, it's the old phrase, once saved, always saved. You know the phrase. <laughs> once saved, always saved. And, and this phrase, it was intended to engender assurance, right? Confidence. Especially when one's faith was weak and wavering. And for those whose faith was shaken by you know, the surprising, sometimes overwhelming presence of remaining sin in their lives... Once saved, always saved. That, that engendered hope, encouragement. Perhaps the reason we don't say it as much as we used to say it is because we've come to recognize that you know, there, there, there's a little problem with the notion of once saved, always saved. Not the least of which is that some people that we thought were saved don't seem to be saved. Um... The problem is, is that it fails to take into consideration the very real possibility of a false profession of faith. Just because someone makes a profession of faith, or prays a prayer, or says that they're trusting Jesus, that does not necessarily mean that they are truly trusting Jesus. To be sure, true believers are kept To the end, by the unconquerable power of Christ. Jesus drives it home again in verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Again, in verse 40, it's implied here. This is the will of the Father, that Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Here's the promise, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. So those who truly believe in Christ are kept in faith. They're kept in grace all the way to the end by the unconquerable power of Christ. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the same thing from his out of his language in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, In him, that is, in Christ, in union with Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's just this, you're locked in, you're sealed in. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, until the very end. Those who truly believe in Christ are sealed, they're kept in faith and in grace by the power of the Spirit of Christ until the day they actually acquire possession of the inheritance, namely eternal joy, eternal pleasure in the presence of Jesus. And and this truth, this truth, it, it engenders Great hope, does it not? It engenders great encouragement, especially when our faith is weak. I mean, certainly, certainly, if we were honest with ourselves, we know that left to ourselves, to our own strength, to our own resolve, to, to us, we, we would undoubtedly drift we would undoubtedly fall off the grid. We would un- most certainly, that if that preservation of my faith, the preservation of my affection for Jesus, the, the preservation of my commitment to following Jesus, it all depended on me, I would undoubtedly drift downstream with the current of this world and my own self-serving desires. I would undoubtedly lose my salvation. And so this view of Christ, oh, it is massive. It is majestic. He is strong. He is sovereign. He is absolute in power and faithfulness. And Jesus will, loved ones, listen, he will never lose his grip. Jesus will never turn away. Jesus will never change his mind Jesus will never remove his powerful hold on his children. And so the problem with the phrase, once saved, always saved, is that it doesn't really answer who is truly saved. Is Jesus just offering this kind of carte blanche promise of safekeeping to Anyone and everyone? Is he offering this promise unconditionally? I mean, certainly, we probably all can think of loved ones, friends, perhaps family members, who at one point in time professed faith in Jesus, expressed affection for Jesus, but who no longer walk with Jesus. you you know someone who at one point in time seemed genuine in their devotion to Christ but now they display no commitment no devotion and you wonder what What happened Jesus has categories for this specifically in his parable of the sower listen listen to what Jesus says the sower sows the word And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation, you know, life gets really hard, (laughs) they suffer for a while, a long while, or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. So, you see, Jesus has categories for false believers. He has a category for those who hear, they see, they taste, they make a start, they have a beginning, But they're not true believers. The promise of John 6, 37 to 40, the the promise Jesus is making is unto those who believe. Present tense, believe. They believe today. In fact, each time John records Jesus' use of the word believe, it is always in the present continuous sense. Namely, whoever comes, keeps coming. Whoever believes, keeps on believing. Whoever eats and drinks and keeps on eating and drinking and taking their fill of Jesus. These are the ones Jesus will never cast out. So you see, the promise of John six thirty seven to forty it, it it does not apply to someone who has taken some past step of faith, but is not believing today. True believers keep believing. False believers may start, but in Jesus' terms in John 15, they they don't abide, they don't remain. True believing is not something that's only past tense, some event back when, something that somebody did at one point in time. True believing, according to Jesus, is always present tense. Jesus says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever, what? Believes present tense, continuous action, should not perish, but have eternal life. Once saved, always saved? Yes! But how do you know you're truly saved? you're believing you're believing loved ones this is why we take the exhortation of hebrews 3:13 and 14 with such great seriousness that text says exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so whatever day it is exhort one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So this is why, you know, each week in our discipleship huddles we ask one another, are you believing? What are you believing? In what are you trusting? What are you really depending on? What is really what the object of your reliance? Are you even mindful of what it is that you're taking your fill of in order to satisfy your heart hunger and quench your soul thirst. If you're entrusting yourself to something else, someone else, then repent and believe. That's that's the vocabulary we use, right? That's why entrusting ourselves to the gospel is, it's not only the way in. Entrusting ourselves to the gospel, living by faith, Faith in all that God promises to be for us in Christ. It's the way on all the way to the end. Now, that might raise a question for you. If the promise of John 6 37 to 40 is that those who truly believe in Christ are kept in faith, kept in grace all the way to the end, then, and this is so crucial, On whom does this keeping depend? And this, loved ones, is is where according to Jesus, he, he says that the entire aim, the entire aim of the incarnation, the entire aim of the eternal word taking on flesh was to accomplish the Father's will. And the will of the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son, everyone who comes to the Son, everyone who believes in the Son and eats and drinks their fill of the Son will have the certain hope of eternal life. And they'll have that hope all the way to the end. Look again. This is verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For, here's the the incarnation, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose, I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in the Son should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So on whom does the keeping, the not losing, depend? Since the very reason that Jesus came into this world and lived a perfect life and died a sin-atoning death and rose again from the grave. He did it in order that none whom the Father has given Him would be lost. That's why the Father sent the Son. That's why Jesus came from heaven as a man. And when anyone comes to him and trusts in him and eats and drinks their fill of him, Jesus Jesus takes them on his shoulders, as it were, and says, I'll keep that. I will protect that. I will never lose that. And so, loved ones, our, our being kept does not depend on our hold on God, but rather on Christ's hold on us. Now, one more question. How is the truth, namely this truth that those who truly believe in Christ are kept in faith and grace all the way to the end by the un- unconquerable power of Christ, how, how is that truth meant to function? You're a believer. Well then, what should be the functional effect of this gospel truth? What is it that God means to put in our hearts as we gain this clear, unobstructed view of this massive, mountainous truth of the keeping power of Christ Jesus? Answer... God means for us to have a profound sense of assurance and security and peace. So, loved ones, let me ask you this. Where should should you look for assurance? Where should you look for security? Where should you look for assurance of salvation? Where should you look for rest and confidence This passage tells us that um, in one sense, you should look to your faith. Again and again and again, Jesus just presses this question on us. Are you believing? Are you believing? Do you believe? Is there faith present? And we're pressed with this question again and again through because this gospel, John's gospel, makes it so emphatically clear that whoever believes in Christ has eternal life. So it's, it's huge, right? The, so the, the text is asking us this question again and again. Do you, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? Are you believing today? But what this vision of Christ, this view of Christ is reminding us is that in looking to whether or not we believe, in in looking to our faith, what we are really looking to, listen carefully, what we are really looking to is Christ. We're not looking to our faith. We are looking to the object Of our faith. Do you believe means is your eye on Christ? Are you looking to the sun? You're not looking at yourself at all. And to those who look to Christ, Christ is, as it were, looking back at us and saying, You're mine. And I will not let you go. And I will hold you fast. And I will raise you up on the last day. I want to close with um, a quote. Kind of a Spurgeon day. Charles Spurgeon Wrote, preached, I'm not sure exactly how this was recorded, but but this this is powerfully fitting. He says, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have such a wavering hold on Jesus. All these are thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing but that Christ is all. To all. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold to Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope but to Jesus, who is the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness in looking at our prayers or our doings or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul." If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God. It must be by looking to Jesus. Keep your eye simply on Him, His glories, His death, His suffering, His merits, His. Intercession. Let them be fresh upon your mind. When you awake in the morning, look to Him. When you lay down at night, look to Him. Oh, let not your hopes or your fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after Him, and He will never fail you. How do we know that's true? Jesus' words in John 6:40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray.